Greetings, listeners, and welcome to The Infinite Room, a little space in which Looking Glass imagines big things. I'm Andy White. I'm a Looking Glass Ensemble member and the Director of Community Engagement. And I'm your host for this episode, though I won't be for all of them, fear not. Of course, our preferred MO is to gather people in real time and in an actual physical space. And that will happen again. It will. We just don't quite know when exactly. But it will happen. In the meantime, though, we have this space to gather, to convene, to talk, to share ideas. And uh, it's a digital world. It's a virtual world. But that gives it its own infinity. And since, since this, is our, this is our debut episode, I just wanted to take a second to um, explain the title. When Looking Glass first opened our first theater in Chicago, it was the edge of the Looking Glass at 62 East 13th Street in what's now known as the South Loop area, which was not built up at all. It was kind of a barren industrial wasteland. You could just hear the wind howling and whistling down through the streets, and that was about it. It was pretty quiet. And we converted a little uh, storefront, very unassuming little place, into a theater. We sandblasted the plaster and hung drywall and put up the electrical conduit for the lighting grid which we hung and the sound equipment and we built the platforms and put the chairs on and hung the pipe and drape all the kinds of things that are needed to transform a non-performance space where performance has never happened into a space where stories and magic can happen and between 1988 and 2003 we did roughly the same thing in 22 different spaces and we learned that we kind of liked it, not so much the hanging of the electrical conduit, but choosing, building, and designing a space that would best suit the story we wanted to tell. So when we moved into the Water Tower Waterworks pumping station in 2003, we wanted to preserve that same capacity, the ability to build, design the space that would best, in a way that would best serve the story. So now when you go down to Looking Glass, and hopefully many of you have before now and will do so again, when you go from the lobby into the theater, you don't know where the stage will be. You don't know where your seat will be. You don't even know what direction you're going to face. So the room itself has not infinite ability to be flexible, but can change a lot. And that's just the physical logistics of the theater. The content itself of course, is wildly variable as well. You might go on an epic whaling adventure under the leadership of uh, uh, an obsessive maniac like Ahab in Moby Dick, or uh, you might enter the topsy-turvy world of Looking Glass Alice, or uh, the hard-bitten reality of temporary laborers in a warehouse and beyond caring, or find yourself laughing at uh, a raucous comedy about race in Plantation, or deeply immersed in the timeless and eternal truths and myths in Metamorphoses. Theater generally, and we like to think Looking Glass particularly, is a room with infinite possibilities. Likewise, the world around us, um, for better and sometimes for worse, a world of infinite possibility. And likewise, this room here in our minds, our imaginations are also world, worlds of infinite capacity. So this infinite room will be a place where we will talk about the infinite 
possibilities in theater, the infinite possibilities in the world around us, and the infinite capacity of the world and worlds inside here, too. So that's a little uh, introduction about us. Uh, enough about enough of my yammering in preface. Let's get to the good stuff. Um, I want to introduce our guests because we're going to pick up right where we left off at Looking Glass with Her Honor Jane Byrne. As many of you may know, the production opened on March 8th to rave, universal rave reviews and amazing word of mouth, and then was cut short in its prime uh, only four days later when it had to close due to the coronavirus and the um, resulting shutdowns. We had planned a whole bunch of public discussions around that production, um, which unfortunately, of course, had to get canceled, but we get to re resurrect uh, one of them today when we bring our guests in, which we're going to do now. Jay Nicole Brooks is a playwright and director and a Looking Glass Ensemble member. She's appeared in numerous Looking Glass productions, including most recently Beyond Caring. She wrote and co-directed Black Diamond, The Year the Locusts Have Eaten. She wrote and starred in Fedra, Queen of Haiti, directed Mr. Ricky Calls a Meeting, co-directed Thaddeus and Slocum of Vaudeville Adventure alongside Chrissy Vanderwalker, and wrote and directed Her Honor Jane Byrne. With her as well is J.R. Fleming. He grew up in Cabrini-Green, where much of Her Honor Jane Byrne takes place. He's the co-founder and director of the Chicago Anti-Eviction Campaign, a nonprofit dedicated to creating and preserving affordable housing, reducing blight, and providing construction jobs and job training. He's a community activist and fierce advocate for public housing residents. JR, would you say that sounds about right? And Lisa Lee is the executive director of the National Public Housing Museum right here in Chicago, the only cultural institution devoted to telling the story of public housing in the United States. Its mission, and I love this, is to preserve, promote, and propel the right of all people to a place where they can thrive and prosper, a place to call home. Lisa, JR, Nikki, great to see you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Nikki, can we start with you? Um, can you just talk a little bit about why you wanted to tell the story about the three weeks that Jane Byrne spent at Cabrini Green? What drew you to the story? And um, a little bit about why you think the story needs to be told. Jane Byrne was someone uh, that was in my household before I really understood anything about Chicago politics, or um, even before I really knew who she was. I was very, very young uh, when uh, Mayor Byrne was in office, uh, too young to understand any of it. But I do, however, remember uh, when she moved into Cabrini Green, and I can remember um, all of the hubbub <laughs> and conversation from adults, uh, whether they were in my house or just like around. I just remember all of the chatter. And um, I think as a writer, I've always been uh, very good at eavesdropping. And um, I think in order to be a really good snoop, you, you have to be uh, an active listener and you have to have uh, some sort of room in your head where you just store it all and maybe it comes back and maybe it doesn't, but this one actually came back. And um, I think because I grew up on the west and south side of Chicago, I've always witnessed housing inequality without even 
really knowing what it was. I just knew that every time I went on a field trip or any time we went downtown or to certain areas, it seemed like other people were living a little bit better than we were. <laughs> so I think uh, when I became an adult and started telling stories, I thought that the best way for me to tell stories was to be honest. And so that means writing from a point of view uh, that feels organic. And um, what was organic to me was just being mad. I was mad at everybody. So instead of fighting everybody, uh, I just thought I would pick up my pen and, and work that way. I grew up across the boulevard from the Robert Taylor Homes, which was at the end of uh, a long stretch, which we uh, know is the Black Belt. Um, not everyone knows that, but you know, either you know it or you don't. And um, in order to go downtown and, and to go to the other places where you had to take care of your business, like when your mama had to pay the light bill or do all of that, you had to go where the white people were. And in order to do that, you either had to take the train or the bus. You had to go through what felt like a force field. And I never liked it. I hated it. And that force field seemed to spread throughout the city. When I started writing, I wanted to write about my experience going through these force fields. And with that, it led me to uh, looking at the people that are the leaders of this city. And the, 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 the leader with the best PR is always the mayor, right? And the mayor don't even make, the mayor is not even a person that makes laws. The mayor really, you know, they can't control all the shit, but they're there. And uh, so I wanted to see where accountability lies. And I discovered through research and just conversation that not everything is the mayor's fault. So I like to write about things that are a bit more complicated and not as black and white. I don't know if I'm answering the question, but this is what happens when you talk to a writer. There are a lot of influences and there's a lot of trauma. And then there's also a lot of imagination. So I like to put it all together and see what comes out of it. And uh, the magic of it, I think, exists when you put those ideas together and put it into a room, a live room with other humans. JR, I wanted to ask you a little bit because you saw the production what what resonated with you from it when you and um did the force fields that uh nikki was just talking about were those operational in your life growing up a lot of things resonated with me um and and, and more so than just me I, I watched the reaction of my wife who went with me to see it and she teared up in a couple scene as she should right um it, it just so much resonated with me the backdrops um the characters you know, how they spoke about their conditions in uh, public housing, um, her connection to them conditions in public housing and being able to tell that story in a way that it resonated, not just with me, with, with anybody who knew about public housing. There are certain scenes in there, uh, um, certain lines that just really hit at home. And I can't give them away, right? That's so, fine. <laughs> So yeah, just so much. It, it captures so much, the backdrops. Um, mm -hmm. um, from the political standpoint, how the community reviewed um, 
from a resident standpoint, how the community was viewed, it just captured a lot, you know. Um, so a lot of it resonated with me, uh, uh, particularly like the Jane Byrne whole thing. Like it definitely had like a personal impact, you know, yes. given, you know, uh, um, she moved in the unit that we used to live in. Is that right? Yes. yes wow. Yes. Yes. Um, oh, my word. Yo, yes, your word. Yes, your word. So, um, and, and I know you spoke, or I heard you speak before about Marion Stamps and the impact that, that she had. And of course, she's a very prominent uh, character in the play and a prominent human in our, all our lives and the lives of the city of Chicago. Can you just, just talk a little bit about uh, the impact or the impression that, I guess maybe the impression that you had her of her at the time? I mean, when I was younger, um, I mean, she like recruited me, right? Uh, right before I joined the Young Democrats and I would fall under the guise of uh, Jesse White and Alderman Burnett for mentorship and leadership. Um, she recruited me for one of her groups, the New Black Panther Party, right? She wanted to start a New Black Panther Party over there with a bunch of young men um, to bring, you know, the 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 end the of division amongst young black men in street gang. Um, I, I thought, the play beautifully captured her, right? Uh, almost made me have a flashback, right? Uh, just her fierceness, uh, it, it lives through the play, you know? Um, for those who wondering how it comes out, uh, it comes out great, you know? If you knew Marion, the play captures that, right? Uh, but Marion was legendary, you know? I always talk about the women who made it possible for me, the, the shoulders that I stand on, and Marion definitely at the top of that list, you know, she paved the way for us as organizers and activists to feel a responsibility, not to give us a responsibility, but to naturally feel a responsibility mm -hmm. about changing the condition and being a voice of the voiceless. So Marion will always live in our work. She will always live in our hearts and definitely is great to see her living um, through a screenplay like this. Mm -hmm. Lisa, can you talk a little bit about, in some a little bit of a similar way, National Public Housing Museum, what you're working on right now. Thanks so much, Andy. Yeah, I mean, the play really is magnificent on so many different levels. And there's really, I think, a shared affinity um, to what the play, I think, was trying to do and also the work of the Public Housing Museum. Um, first and foremost, history is not a spectator sport. And so, like, when you watch the film, the play, you really have the sensibility um, that this is controversial, this is provocative, this is challenging. Not all of us will have the same response to it, um, and that is a really good thing about the play. So congratulations, Nikki. Um, the other thing is that sometimes people think that history is made up of, you know, like the grand policy initiatives that were passed. So in public housing, people think you have to know about the 1937 Housing Act or the Woods Amendment or what was HUD doing or what was, you know, sort of the housing authorities, you know, sort of passing and the people in sort of mainstream power positions. And what is so lovely about the play and really sort of aligns with the work of the Public Housing Museum is this belief in everyday people's stories that are the foundation of what makes history and what drives social change and what also informs the work for justice. And so the thing about the play is that it asks us to take this really important moment of history, but it unpacks it and includes the sort of human stories of every single person that Nikki represents. And I want to say that it's the sort of the passions, the desires, the dreams, as well as the sort of disappointments um, that every person is facing on everyday issue. Um, and 
the thing that I love about the play is even though it's called Her Honor Jane Byrne, um, there's just such a lovely representation of other people like Marion Stamps. Like you learn all about her own political lineage, you know, about how she was informed by the Black Power movement, the murder of Fred Hampton, these sort of deep historical threads. So it's not an isolated moment of history, that history is connected through all of these moments and not just through the past, but then asks us as viewers to think about how this history informs our collective future as we move forward. Um, and then one other thing that I just want to say very quickly is that, um, you know, at the National Public Housing Museum, we really believe in the power of arts and culture to unleash our radical imaginations for our collective futures, and that it is this radical imagination which will shape housing in history, um, you know, and sort of address the real problems of housing insecurity. And so something that I loved about the play was that some of the made-up people, like Tiger, and the conversations that um, Jane Byrne either had or didn't have, right? The sort of imaginary that Nikki brought into the play. These were the moments to me that really unleashed our sort of imaginations for the potential of what might have happened in history if we had done X, Y, or Z. What could happen if we would take action? And I think that is so important for us, especially in these times, as we're, you know, addressing, like navigating, you know, really difficult times, you know, in like what is our individual roles, you know? And so there's a lot of fact and there's some fiction, um, but one of my favorite quotes is by this um, art historian, Jules Brown, who says that sometimes history takes small facts and then turns them into large untruths and artists actually take small untruths and then turn them into the most profound truths about us that we all need to confront and encounter. And I feel like this play really did that. I love that idea of radical imagination. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we have in common and why the National Public Housing Museum and Looking Glass, I think, were such good partners on this show and made a lot of sense to work together. Um, JR, can you talk a little about, again, um, like what, what are the things that you're working on right now in, in public housing? Well, uh, given this recent pandemic, um, it has us refocusing on our call and demand that the um, city of Chicago and the federal government put more investments into public housing. Um, as we always claim that everybody's always a paycheck away from being homeless, I think this pandemic has showed us that again, and what better time to recommit to public housing than now. Um, so that's part of our work right now is, is the big push um, for public housing reinvestment like we did in the 30s. Uh, Another piece of my work uh, has focused on the impact and after effects of holding the elections and public housing senior facilities, right? There's a lot of research going on to that right now. I believe there was some data that just came out the other day that said that 70% of the present cases in Chicago for coronavirus has been African-Americans, right? Yeah. And um, so we're, we're pretty much looking at um, the impact um, how can I say the impact it has had on the seniors, right? Our most vulnerable community. Um, there's a call for more affordable housing um, in the city of Chicago. And so we're looking at alternative models like cooperative housing and community land trusts. Um, and as, as part of the pandemic and job development for residents, we're also monitoring how the housing authority has responded and making sure they have been sanitizing the senior care facilities, and it hasn't been happening. I'm just gonna be truthful about it. Um, you would think given this pandemic, 
and the vulnerability of seniors, uh, why everybody was out there mad dashing and buy for all of the cleaning supply, that it was struck some accord in some government to say, hey, let's get out here and make sure we're cleaning down and wiping down these senior facilities at least once or twice a day, if not twice a day, at least once a day. But the mere fact that that hasn't happened is is, is startling um, right now to us. Andy, can I also say um, that you know so much of JR's work has been focused on raising um, housing as a human right, and this is also one of the missions of the Public Housing Museum. And in this particular moment, when we're all talking about sheltering in place and sort of staying at home, it really raises the question, what does it mean for people who don't have a home? And what is the safety of people who have nowhere to shelter, right? And so, um, you know, this particular moment is providing a really different kind of lens and a kind of fierce urgency to a lot of the message and missions of housing activists, not just here in Chicago, but across this country and also around the globe. I'm just curious if you had um, learnings or discoveries or things that you came across either in your research that you didn't know or uh, over the course of the journey, if there was anything that sticks out to you now that was like, ah, oh, this, is, this, is, this is a good piece of wisdom that I, I gained. It's really quite hard to, um, itemize the things that I learned, the journey that I had with this beautiful, beautiful company. And that extends not only to the, um, the actors and the designers and the people backstage and you know everyone that put their hands on the deck. But to me, the company extends to folks like JR and Lisa Lee because I think what I discovered is that you can, in fact, build something that is artistic that includes the community. Um, and sure, you might know that going in, but you really don't know it until you get into it. We're in this like uh, very strange and kind of cool time where we're spending, like we have to think about things and it's all still swirling and I feel like it's, it, I'm still downloading. So yeah. when I get asked a question, I'm like, I don't know. I just know that we were all in this room together and we laughed and we cried and some people agreed and some people argued and then we got told to go home and now we're inside of our houses and I wrote this play about how people live. And now I'm like, how are people living? So the, the work is not done. <laughs> it never is. No. Yeah. And that, that toughness that you were talking about, you're right, is really being called upon, uh, asked to manifest in, in different ways, both a toughness and a tenderness at the same time. It's really, um, as we were discussing before, it's just a, a, a really, interesting um, is does not does not cover it uh, time can I also just say Andy um, what I think that Nick Nikki brought up about you know this is both at one time a uniquely Chicago story but it also was a universal story is really important because like we all know that you know you only get to the universal through the very concrete particular sort of you know, details of a, of a place, a time, a person. And there's a kind of way that Chicago stories 
need to be so much about the intersections of race and class and gender. And this particular story about sort of a, the first, you know, white woman mayor and her intersections with a powerful black woman housing activist, you know, in a segregated Chicago, in a Cabrini Green, which is in the middle of, you know, one of the wealthiest neighborhoods of Chicago, yeah. it forces us to really confront the big issues around race, class, and gender, which have determined our country since the you know, beginning of our founding, but also in this particular moment of COVID, as JR brought up, which is so impacting people of color in a different way, um, who are you know, living in, you know, in the margins of society. And so there's like a kind of real ability to say, you know, this is a Chicago story. And I feel always so proud that the National Public Housing Museum is in Chicago because of Chicago's history of public housing, but also to be completely unabashed to say that this is also a national story that speaks to everybody because it's in Chicago, you know? Just some shy time pride. <laughs> like, like, and I'm gonna bag you up to say that. I'm glad that it's in Chicago. I love my folks, uh, uh, my fierce freedom fighters at NYCHA in New York City and D.C., Virginia. But hands down, they'll tell you, in this country, Chicago has a different brand of public housing, human rights organizers and activists. Always have and always will. There is much expectation that comes with being an activist from Chicago, particularly uh, um, Cabrini Green, right? You, you stand on the shoulders of giants like Marianne Stamp, Cora Moore, Carol Steele, you know, Bertha Gilkey, just so many fierce women, Henrietta John, Luella Edwards, all of these women, they put that work in. And if you don't know about it, when you get to getting into organizing the activism nationally, you'll be reminded of that, right? Uh, and, and so for me, it, it, it feels great, you know, to know that the folks from Cabrini Green, the folks from Public Housing in Chicago, went to assist during Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans to help the public housing resonate. Yeah. When, 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 the, when the folks of New York was going through a bunch of inhuman living conditions that made the front page of the paper over the last year about the rats, rodents, and the lack of repairs, it was public housing leaders from Chicago that assisted in that. You know, we've always tried to be at the forefront of making sure it's not just about Chicago, like our story is everybody's story, you know? And I believe this play resonate with, it's gonna resonate with a lot of people across the country. Yeah, there's this beautiful quote that I heard this weekend, which is artists draw from the well of human experience and then they serve it to the people so that it can quench our thirst for meaning and understanding. And like, that's what this play is doing, right? Like we know what happens, right? Like that's the part you can type into Wikipedia, but what does it mean? Yeah. And, you know, like, how do we actually grapple with this history? Of and course, we <laughs> hope um, that this play will have further and future life at some point in the future in Chicago, in some of the cities that you're talking about, because I fully agree that I think it's going to have resonance uh, far beyond its, its time and far beyond its location. Um, as I knew would happen, uh, we are only grazing the surface of this massive iceberg. Um, and uh, so, but it is, we do have to wrap up our conversation. So I just want to thank the three of you for joining this conversation. Um, uh, piggybacking though on some of the things we're talking about, uh, for each of these things, we want to give a shout out to one of our community partners. Uh, one of our community partners on the, um, 
for the last three years actually has been an organization called My Block, My Hood, My City, which is building community on the south side and in communities across Chicago. Um, and prim primarily they work with youth, but recently, especially in light of the pandemic, they've been working with seniors, delivering care packages with toiletries and hand sanitizer and food and supplies to seniors. So I encourage you listeners or watchers to go check them out at formyblock.org. That is F-O-R-M-Y-B-L-O-C-K.org. Uh, and you can find out more about them. They're an awesome organization. They've been great partners to us as well. So thank you, Nikki, Lisa, JR. Thank you so much for joining this premiere, world premiere conversation of The Infinite Room. It's been really great to be in conversation with you and Thank I hope we have more, more opportunities to do it. Yeah, take care everyone, stay safe. Thank you. Sending you um, peace and, and fortitude, uh, thank you. Hey, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Infinite Room. Our artistic director is Heidi Stillman. Our executive director is Rachel Fink. If you'd like to learn more about the National Public Housing Museum, please go to nphm.org. And if you'd like to learn more about J.R. Fleming and the Chicago Anti-Eviction Campaign, you can visit their website at chicagoantieviction.org. And of course, you can always visit us at lookingglasstheater.org to learn more about the programming that we have for you. And please keep an ear out for the next episode of The Infinite Room. Thank you.